Welcome to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, the ABA Journal's Lee Rawls, and today I'm joined by Samantha Barbas, author of the new book, Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan. Samantha, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me on the show. So for a case that was decided by the Supreme Court in 1964, we sure have heard a lot about it being brought up recently in some challenges to whether New York Times versus Sullivan should still be good law. Is this one of the reasons that you started researching this case in particular? What brought you to this subject at this time? Was it a coincidence? I'd just love to hear about uh, how this all began for you. Yeah. So I'm a legal historian specializing in mass media and First Amendment law. And I had written uh, several books and articles on media law topics over the past decade. And I became very interested in New York Times versus Sullivan about three or four years ago. Of course, it's the canonical First Amendment case, you know, regarded to be one of the most important in history. And it was really interesting as I began to write this history of New York Times versus Sullivan, the subject of the book actually became more newsworthy and timely as we've been having these national conversations in the past five years or so about whether or not the Sullivan rule should be retained. So I didn't write this book kind of anticipating the volume of discussion that we'd be having today about Sullivan, but it's certainly interesting that the case has risen to such prominence, especially in the past couple of months. So as a journalist who, you know, went to journalism school and took multiple media law classes during it, I was familiar with the outcome of New York Times versus Sullivan and the broad strokes of what had gone on in the underlying cases. But there was a lot of information in your book that I just had no idea about. Uh, But with the assumption that only a handful of my listeners may have paid similar attention to New York Times versus Sullivan, can you give us an overview of what happened in the underlying case. I know you just wrote an entire book about it, but if you could do a summary, what events led to New York Times versus Sullivan? Yeah, so New York Times versus Sullivan was a libel case that really came out of the conflict over civil rights in the South in the early 1960s. And in the case that gave rise to the Sullivan ruling, L.B. Sullivan, a police commissioner of Montgomery, Alabama, sued the New York Times over an advertisement that appeared in the Times that had been placed by a civil rights group. It was a fundraising advertisement. And this ad listed a number of acts of brutality that Southern officials, police officials had inflicted on nonviolent civil rights protesters. So this was a moment, it's 1960, when the civil rights movement was really taking off. Sullivan alleged that some of these allegations had defamed him, they hurt his reputation, and he also alleged that they were false. In reality, most of these charges were true, and Sullivan's reputation hadn't been harmed, Uh, Nevertheless, he sued the New York Times and four civil rights leaders whose names had been put on the ad for libel and was able to win a half a million dollar verdict because the libel laws were so strict at the time. And really, this libel suit of L.B. Sullivan was part of a concerted campaign, uh, sort of a libel attack on the press 
and the civil rights movement that was waged by a number of Southern officials. It was almost part of a conspiracy of sorts, an attempt to shut down the press, which was covering the civil rights movement very extensively and very favorably, uh, and also to shut down the civil rights movement by suing its leaders for libel. Um, and so ultimately, you know, this case goes up to the Supreme Court and results in this landmark ruling that's critically important, not only in First Amendment law, but really sort of changing the standards of libel and allowing journalists to report more extensively on public officials and public affairs. So one of the interesting elements about this is this was not a New York Times journalist or even a New York Times editorial writer who wrote the text on the page. This was an advertisement that, as you uh, report in the book, was actually written by Bayard Rustin and a playwright named John Murray. So how did the New York Times come to be so implicated in the case? What was different about the way the New York Times handled ads that may have put them in more danger? Yeah, so the New York Times had a long history of accepting advertisements from civil rights groups. And uh, this organization that placed the ad in 1960, it was called the Committee to Defend Martin Luther King and the Struggle for Freedom in the South, wrote an advertisement uh, that, again, listed these sort of abuses, um, these acts of violence by police officials against civil rights protesters, and this ad, it turned out, was written rather hastily. There were a few mistakes in it. And the New York Times did not fact check the ad. And that became very important to the case. The Times had a history of scrupulously checking the accuracy of everything that appeared in the paper, including advertisements. But in this instance, it did not. And those are errors of fact. Uh, what, were what allowed um, L.B. Sullivan to prevail on his libel claim. The other interesting thing to me was how this ad came to the attention of, you know, the public affairs commissioner of the city of Montgomery in Alabama. You reported that only 394 copies of the paper were distributed in the state of Alabama. So how did this particular ad wind up getting so much steam. Yeah, it's a really interesting story. So as you mentioned, there were just a handful of copies at the time circulated regularly in Alabama. And one of those copies came to the attention of a newspaper editor of the Montgomery Advertiser named Grover Hall. And Grover Hall had long been a critic of the Northern press. He believed that news outlets like the New York Times were ridiculing the South. They were criticizing the Southern way of life and segregation unfairly. And when Hall saw this advertisement with its accusations against the Montgomery police, he thought that this would potentially provide grounds for a libel suit. And he took this to Sullivan, and he took this to a well-known libel lawyer in the area. And so this libel suit was kind of concocted from the start as a sort of uh, vendetta, as a kind of attack on the press, which uh, the Montgomery officials had felt were you know, really unfairly attacking the South. And what were some of the factual errors that were in that? 
Yeah, there were a number of very minor errors in the advertisement. I think the ad stated incorrectly the name of a song that student protesters had allegedly sung on the Capitol steps. It said that L.B. Sullivan's police had ringed the college campus uh, to try to punish certain protesters, but they hadn't actually ringed it. They had formed the line. Uh, and it also said that Sullivan had padlocked a local dining hall in order to starve student protesters to punish them. Uh, and that wasn't true. Sullivan had been implicated in other types of violence, but not that particular act. So the overall essence of the allegations was correct. It was just these details that were slightly off. And it had not mentioned Sullivan by name, to be clear. Yes, it mentioned the police. And Sullivan made the claim ultimately successful that an attack on the police was implicitly an attack on the head of the police. We're going to take a quick break to hear a word from one of our advertisers, but we will return speaking with Samantha Barbas, author of Actual Malice, Civil Rights, and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan. Filing court documents, serving legal papers, collecting electronic signatures, all critical parts of the litigation process, yet ones that are time-consuming and error-prone. But what if you could do more straight from your case or document management software? InfoTrack automates data entry, document selection, tracking, and information syncing across all these core tasks and more by integrating with your core systems like Clio, Smokeball, Leap, MyCase, and others. Spend more time on substantive legal work and less time on busy work. Learn how simple it can be at InfoTrack.com simple. Delegate out those tasks that take up your time. Staffy can help you with your legal, administrative, marketing, and even client-facing workload. Hiring Staffy's top-notch bilingual virtual staff means Staffy does the recruiting, hiring, and training for you. Then, if you need a change, Staffy handles it. You get to concentrate on your strategic work. Schedule a free consultation at staffy.cc. That's S-T-A-F-I dot C-C and get $500 off with code HAPPY24. Welcome back. I'm still here speaking to Samantha Barbas. So Samantha, one of the things I really enjoyed as a reader, and some of this may just be the number of lawyers I have in my life, but you get to profile or, or bring up a number of lawyers who were involved in this litigation who are such colorful characters. I'd love to start out with Louis Loeb, who is the New York Times longtime lawyer. Could you talk a little bit about him? Yeah, Louis Loeb was a lawyer for the New York Times for about two and a half decades prior to the time of the Sullivan case. And uh, he was a very proper gentleman, a very respected lawyer who ultimately was very conservative in the sense that he wanted the Times to restrain its reporting so as to avoid further libel problems in the South. There's an interesting part of the book where I describe kind of the conflict at the Times between the lawyers and the journalists. So Loeb and the other lawyers uh, were adamant that the Times had to take all of its reporters out of Alabama after the Sullivan case was filed because, again, it didn't want to invite any more libel litigation. 
And the reporters were very angry about this. Here, there's a critically important story, the civil rights movement, and the journalists can't cover it because of these libel suits. And so uh, one of the lawyers, or rather one of the journalists, uh, wrote in, in a letter that I had access to, um, how much longer are we going to let the damn lawyers run this newspaper? Um, so they were very upset with sort of the conservatism of, of Loeb, but ultimately the case went in the Times' favor. And I love to quote that you included about the law firm that Loeb was attached to, at least at some point in time, Lord Day and Lord. And I guess this was one of the Salzburgers, the owners of the Times, said about them, whether they were traumatized by the loss of the Titanic because they had represented the Cunard line. I really can't say, but they were certainly cautious. So this is, you know, a very conservative, traditional law firm, white shoe, all of this. And, you know, the New York Times was really going out there in their opinion. So when Louis Loeb was facing this case, in addition to pulling out the reporters from Alabama, what were his tactics? How did he manage to take this to the Supreme Court and get a verdict that literally changed laws. Yeah. So the New York Times had a policy of never settling libel cases. Uh, It didn't want to get a reputation for being kind of an easy target uh, for, you know, disgruntled politicians who were trying to silence it with libel suits. But there was a moment after the Times had lost the Sullivan case at the Alabama Supreme Court, when the newspaper had to decide, are we going to settle this thing or are we going to try to appeal this to the U.S. Supreme Court? And Loeb was really torn because uh, the law was not on their side. Uh, Prior to 1964, the Supreme Court had said repeatedly that there were no First Amendment protections for speakers in libel law, that libel law was entirely outside of the First Amendment. So there was this moment at the paper, are we going to try to make this bold First Amendment claim before the Supreme Court, or are we just going to try to settle and move on? And Loeb and the lawyer that he called in to represent the Times at this stage, uh, Herbert Wexler, who was a Columbia law professor and very esteemed as a sort of both an academic and a lawyer, they make this choice that really, you know, the future of journalism kind of depends on the choice that we make here. And ultimately, they do make the First Amendment argument before the court, which ultimately wins. And just as an example of another bit of color you inject into your book, uh, Loeb actually appeared before the Supreme Court without wearing socks. Can you tell that story? (laughs) Yeah. So Loeb, I guess, had a sort of skin condition uh, that, uh, you know, made him very sensitive to sunlight. And he had been on a vacation in the Bahamas or something right before this case was heard at the Supreme Court in January 1964. And so his feet were badly sunburned and he was unable to wear socks. And so he he writes that uh, he was one of the first lawyers or perhaps the first and only lawyer to appear before the Supreme Court uh, without socks. Well, we've talked about who was representing the New York Times. Let's turn our focus to the Montgomery officials and who they found to represent them. 
Yeah. So the lawyer representing L.B. Sullivan and the other Alabama officials in the libel cases was named Roland Nachman. I had always thought that, of course, Nachman must have been a segregationist. You know, he must have been a very traditional Southerner to be representing the officials in this case. But that was not so. Nachman was a fairly young lawyer. He was in his 30s and he graduated from Harvard Law School. He was originally from Montgomery, but he had wide exposure to a lot of culture in the North and had lived in different parts of the country. He was not a segregationist. Uh, He was very politically liberal, but he was a very shrewd libel lawyer. That was his specialty was libel law. And when he saw the opportunity to bring this What ultimately must have been, he thought, a very successful case because libel law was uh, so strict, Uh, he he seized that opportunity. And uh, ultimately, he was very tenacious, as I describe throughout the book, uh, very aggressive. But uh, ultimately, he actually represented the uh, Montgomery advertiser in uh, libel cases, and, uh, you know, he once said that the best thing uh, in the view of the Montgomery advertiser that he ever did was to, to lose the Sullivan case, because ultimately that protected journalists. And one thing he said after the arguments concluded, but before the decision was released, was either I win this case or they're going to have to majorly change libel law as we know it. I'm paraphrasing there. Uh, So we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from one of our advertisers. And when we return, we will talk about how this case did change libel law. Welcome back to the Modern Law Library. I'm your host, Lee Rawls, speaking with Samantha Barvis, author of Actual Malice, Civil Rights and Freedom of the Press in New York Times versus Sullivan. So we talked about how the New York Times won this lawsuit, but we haven't really addressed what were the major differences in American libel law before New York Times versus Sullivan and after? Yeah. So prior to the Sullivan ruling, libel laws were very strict. It was very easy for a public official, a politician who was upset with some criticism in the newspaper to bring a libel suit and to prevail, even if the criticism was more or less true. And of course, uh, those strict libel laws made it very risky for journalists to report on controversial issues and public officials who might be litigious. All of that changed with New York Times versus Sullivan when the Supreme Court ruled that as a matter of First Amendment law, a public official plaintiff in a libel suit needs to show actual malice. So they need to show that the defamatory statement was made by the speaker with knowledge of its falsity or with actual malice, which means reckless disregard of the truth. And before the burden was on the part of the person who wrote the information or published the information to show that all of the information was true in all of its particulars, and the burden then switched away from that, didn't it? Yeah. So the only way that a defendant could mount a defense in libel uh, cases prior to Sullivan was to show that the defamatory statement was true 
completely and in all its particulars, which is almost impossible to demonstrate. And so after New York Times versus Sullivan or with the Sullivan ruling, uh, the burden was now on the plaintiff to show that the statement was false and made with reckless disregard of the truth. And the phrase actual malice, let's talk about the man who came up with it, Justice William Brennan. The phrase actual malice, I believe, is not even mentioned in the New York Times brief. I think that Justice Brennan kind of invented this term, and he later regretted having done so because it's fairly misleading. Normally, we think of malice in the law as being spite or ill will, but that's not what it means in this context. So actual malice, again, is reckless disregard of the truth. It asks, what did the defendant know about the truth of the statement at the time it was published? Uh, What was the defendant's attitude towards the truth? not whether they had ill will or hatred towards the plaintiff. So he regretted that phrase, believed that it was misleading, and indeed it has confused (laughs) generations of Americans since that time. And how did the rest of the court get behind Justice Brennan and this real departure from what libel law had rested on in this entire time up to the October 1963 Supreme Court term. Do you have any evidence of what sort of internal discussions were held? Yes, I did have access to the correspondence and some of the memoranda that were kept uh, by the justices at the time. It was apparent to all of the justices that Sullivan's verdict had to be thrown out. The justices were aware of the fact that This was part of a concerted campaign by Southern officials against the Northern press, that Sullivan's lawsuit was pretextual, that he hadn't been harmed, and that really the whole future of the press and the civil rights movement rested on how this case turned out. So they were all quite clear that the judgment had to be reversed, but the actual rule that they were going to use to accomplish that was a matter of some debate. Uh, There were some justices, uh, Justices Black, uh, Douglas, and Goldberg, who were ready to take an absolute position, that is to say that all criticism of public officials, even if false, uh, even if intentional, would be protected under the First Amendment. And the other justices didn't agree with that. There were some who would take a much more uh, conservative line and Brennan was able to sort of bring the factions on the court together and unify them behind this actual malice standard. It was kind of a compromise between the more extreme positions on the court. You mentioned that the justices certainly knew that this libel case could have a major impact on the civil rights movement. We've talked about how this case impacted uh, journalism, but let's get into the civil rights aspect of it. Uh, Would you like to expound on that? Yeah. Um, So this libel suit, Sullivan's libel suit, and really all of the libel cases uh, that were brought by the Alabama officials against the New York Times and the civil rights leaders. And really, by the time the Sullivan case got to the Supreme Court, the New York Times was facing 12 major libel suits brought by Southern officials over its civil rights coverage with uh, verdicts totaling 
more than $6 million, an amount that could have bankrupted the New York Times. This was obviously an attempt of the Southern officials to shut down the Northern press and to stop its coverage of the civil rights movement and to undermine the civil rights movement itself. The segregationists were very aware of the importance of press coverage to the advance of the civil rights movement. When the New York Times or the Washington Post reported on how civil rights activists were being beaten by police in places like Birmingham and Montgomery, when they showed images of protesters being attacked by police dogs uh, in the streets, this was very powerful and it really helped change Northern public opinion in favor of civil rights. So the segregationists were very afraid of of the power of the press, and they wanted to try to shut that down through libel suits. And indeed, that might have been the case if the Supreme Court hadn't intervened. One of the interesting things that I was able to bring out in the book was the extent to which these libel suits were also impacting the civil rights movement. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s civil rights organization, the Southern Christian Leadership Conference, was paying for the defense of the four civil rights leaders implicated in the libel suit. And that organization was just getting started in a number of very important civil rights activities, such as the Freedom Rides and the sit-ins. And these libel suits were really draining from that organization time and money that it needed to go forward with its civil rights campaign. King called the libel suits a civil rights crisis. It was really threatening the future of his organization and the important work that it was doing. So that's a dimension of the story that really hadn't been covered in previous writings on Sullivan, and I wanted to bring that out in my book. In your research, what other pieces of evidence or papers or correspondence did you find to be really new and helpful in telling this story? I was fortunate to have access to some archival documents that scholars hadn't examined in their previous writings on Sullivan. Uh, I did look at the New York Times papers and correspondence between lawyers and journalists around the Alabama libel lawsuits. Uh, And those papers were held at the New York Public Library. And I also looked at some of the archival papers of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and uh, Martin Luther King and some of the leaders of the organization that really underscored sort of the, the critical impact of these libel suits on the civil rights movement. Now, as you shared earlier, you weren't writing this book as a response to modern criticisms of the case. You were trying to give us all a more grounded understanding of the facts behind the case and the stories surrounding the case. But I I would like to hear your opinion, having been very grounded in New York Times versus Sullivan. First off, for listeners who haven't heard about this debate, what are some of the modern criticisms of Sullivan and you know, do you have an opinion over, did the did the case go too far? Do we need to look at libel law and, and tighten or loosen it? Yeah, there have been a number of criticisms of Sullivan that have been discussed in recent years. One criticism that has gotten a lot of traction is, um, you know, Sullivan was decided in 1964. 
the political climate, the cultural climate, the media environment was much different then uh, compared to today. And for that reason, we really need to look at some of the assumptions and principles that underlie the Sullivan decision. One point or uh, one facet uh, of uh, social life that has changed dramatically since 1964, of course, is the rise of the internet and social media. There are some who say, you know, reputations are really fragile today. It's so easy to be defamed online, and that harm can be permanent. It can be very hard to correct it. So in light of that, wouldn't it make sense to change our libel law to make it more protective of reputation? So that's one criticism. And another argument that some have made is today we face sort of a problem with misinformation and disinformation online. Maybe we could use libel law to sort of turn back this flood of falsehoods under New York Times versus Sullivan. Falsehoods are protected to a significant extent, so no one is really incentivized to um, be scrupulous with the facts, uh, is the argument. So perhaps, again, we need to shift libel law to meet the realities of the social media age. Now, I don't agree with those criticisms. I think that uh, there are other ways to deal with these problems of reputational harm and misinformation that do not involve changing New York Times versus Sullivan, because changing the Sullivan standard would really represent a massive shift to our free speech regime. It would make it much more difficult for journalists to report on public affairs. It would make it more difficult for all of us to have critical conversations about elected officials and public issues. So I, I think some of these criticisms are, are valid and worth looking at, but I'm not sure that changing constitutional libel standards is the best way to address those concerns. You do get into the history of journalism, and as inflammatory as some modern journalism, uh, and I may put that in sarcasm quotes, or blogs tend to be, this is not entirely new. Some of the material being produced during the yellow journalism era or being said about Hollywood stars in the early period of Hollywood was truly out there as well. When you look at that form of journalism and today's, do you think that the New York Times versus Sullivan decision has truly changed journalism when it comes to inflammatory writing? There was a lot of sensational journalism, certainly, before 1964. I had written a previous book on Confidential Magazine, which was a notorious tabloid that published a lot of scandalous material about celebrities. I think the difference uh, between uh, something like Confidential and then, you know, today's inflammatory journalism with tabloids and talk radio and so forth is that publications like Confidential really risked their very existence when they published those scandalous and often false facts. As I write in the book on confidential libel suits, essentially, you know, put that publication out of business. Whereas today, because free speech protections are so much more robust, it is certainly possible for reporters to get away with quite a bit, including publishing outright falsehoods. So there have been some who have argued that 
kind of the media climate today with its less savory aspects, again, you know, inflammatory talk radio, scandalous tabloids, is one unfortunate byproduct of the Sullivan decision. And I think, you know, it's true that Sullivan did embolden the press and it did kind of give rise to a lot of wild and inflammatory conversation. But that's the kind of discourse that we really should be fostering in democratic society is, you know, as Justice Brennan said famously in the opinion, uninhibited, robust and wide open public conversations. So I had a journalism professor, Professor Bob Reed, who used to tell the baby journalists in front of him, a printing press is an awfully heavy object to drop on someone's head. There is a difference um, under our current libel law system between a public figure or a private figure. Could you talk a little bit about what that is for anyone who may not know the finer points in libel law? Yeah. So New York Times versus Sullivan dealt only with public officials who were libel plaintiffs. And in subsequent cases in the 1960s, the Supreme Court extended the Sullivan actual malice rule to libel suits involving public figures. And the court has since defined that category very broadly. So a public figure is anyone who puts themselves into a public issue or public affair. So even if you write a blog about a popular topic, you effectively become a public figure for the purpose of that topic or issue because you put yourself into the limelight on that subject. And so effectively, everyone who is not a public official another broad category, or a public figure is a private figure. And uh, the, the Sullivan rule does not necessarily apply. But one of the criticisms we've seen a lot lately with the Sullivan line of cases is that this category of public figures is too broad. Um, why should somebody who tweets about a controversial issue lose some protection for their reputation and have to meet the high actual malice bar? So that's something that we could see some change on in the in the coming years is this definition of who is a public figure. The other thing that interested me when I was reading the early part of the book was you mentioned that there was a, a 19, I think it was 1943 case called Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire that was the quote unquote fighting words decision and a an idea called low value speech. So What's low value speech? And does that still have an impact in libel law today? Or was this just all overtaken once New York Times versus Sullivan was issued? Yeah. So Chaplinsky versus New Hampshire was a Supreme Court decision from the early 1940s. And it was famous for stating this low value theory, as you mentioned. And the idea was that there are some kinds of speech that have such little social value that they are not protected by the First Amendment. And so those categories of low-value speech included fighting words, uh, obscenity, and defamation or libel. And that was kind of the operative rule that was in place uh, when the New York Times was bringing this appeal to the Supreme Court. So again, you know, the court had said, 
very clearly that libel was outside of the First Amendment. It was one of these sort of low-value areas of speech. Um, of course, New York Times versus Sullivan did away with that. So now libel, you know, is uh, limited by the Constitution, by the First Amendment. So now that actual malice is out there and available for purchase, do you have a next area of media law that you're focused on or that you want to do more work on and perhaps produce a future book? Yeah, I've been really interested in uh, the history of uh, the First Amendment and uh, really interested in aspects of the, the cultural history of First Amendment law. But I'll just hold back on <laughs> revealing the next project right now. I would like to mention uh, another earlier project of yours where you profiled a, a very interesting uh, attorney. Could you, you talk a bit about that book? The Morris Ernst book, uh, the, the Rise and Fall of Morris Ernst, Free Speech Renegade. Morris Ernst was a very flamboyant, interesting lawyer who was a uh, general counsel of the ACLU in the 1930s and 40s. He was a pioneer of modern free speech law. He is best known for his defense of James Joyce's Ulysses, which had been brought up on obscenity charges famously in the early 1930s. He was a key figure in not only modernizing First Amendment law, but also bringing the ACLU to prominence and really helping that organization become mainstream. And if people want to hear about Actual Malice or any of your other books, where could they go? I do have a website, which is uh, samanthabarbus.com. All my books are sold on Amazon, of course. <laughs> well, thank you to Samantha Barbus for joining us for this episode of the Modern Law Library. And thank you to you, my listeners. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe in your favorite podcast listening service. And if you have a book you'd like me to consider for a future episode, you can always reach us at books at abajournal.com. <laughs>